Father, I thank you that you have sent your Son for us. God, you are the treasure that is more valuable than anything of this world. You are the vine, Lord, and we are just branches. Help us to abide in you tonight. Help us to respond in faith to your word and to treasure you more than anything. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 to 21. Jesus says this, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do not lay up treasures for yourself on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where neither or when thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. At the heart of Jesus' message are two questions, and they're really the same thing. The first question is who is your reward? Is it men or is it God? And the second is like the first. Where is your treasure? Is it on earth or is it in heaven? Jesus here is calling us to find our reward in the Father and our treasure in heaven. But sin distorts our hearts. Such that our reward is often in the passing praises of men and our treasure is in the temporary pleasures of the world. Our reward sensibilities are out of sync. Our treasure is disoriented, and the Bible calls this sin. We love what doesn't satisfy, and we hope in what never saves. We want to be seen, we want to be loved, to be valued. We want our lives to matter. And we grow frantically anxious and numbingly despairing and selfishly apathetic such that we lose sight of the very one speaking to us of a treasure that is of surpassing worth. Not because of what it buys for us, but because of who it is. For some of us, our sense of worth worth has been distorted externally by others. Maybe you go unseen. Maybe you've been devalued by others, by their actions, by their words, by their attitudes. To you, life doesn't matter. Anxiety, fear, and despair are the only way. There couldn't possibly be a treasure whose love could liberate you from finding your worth in others. For others of us, Our sense of worth has been distorted internally. Maybe you feel ashamed. 
Maybe your existence is crushing because you can never do enough for those around you, for your husband, for your wife, for your children, your friends, and certainly not God. Your sin and your struggle are too great. Apathy, anger, and escape are the only way. There couldn't possibly be a treasure whose love could liberate you from finding your worth in your own capabilities. See, what we love, and conversely, what we fear, reveals what we treasure. Every person will be a slave to something, and the choice centers on what one treasures most. And Matthew here is arranging his gospel such that the message of the kingdom shapes our view of the narrative about the king. That's Jesus. And this is the message that there is no greater reward or infinitely more valuable treasure than in Christ. And the world cannot offer this. So how should we respond? Well, the main idea of this sermon, and I think the message of King Jesus for us this evening, is this. Treasure Christ and his kingdom rather than the praises of men and the pleasures of the world. Treasure Christ and his kingdom rather than the praises of men and the pleasures of the world. This brings us to our first point. There are two rewards, verses 16 to 18. Jesus here presents us with two rewards, one from men and the other from the Father. And the setting for this teaching is given in the first four words. Look again at Matthew 6, verses 16. He starts out by saying, and when you fast. Jesus here is not relocating fasting to a social setting. It's just simply when you fast. And the you here that is fasting is found actually in chapter 5. Because chapters 5 to 7 is, is one literary unit. So at the beginning of this, what we know as the Sermon of the Mount, verses 1, Jesus, or, or sorry, Matthew says this. Seeing the crowds, he went up to the, on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So the crowd seem, here seem to be a, a mixed audience of true followers who perhaps left John the Baptist to follow Jesus and those among the towns who came to hear about this famous prophet. So who is this teaching for? Well, it seems that Jesus' message reveals his audience. You see, his message is about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Jesus' audience then are those who would enter the kingdom, right? Kingdom people. And why is this significant? Well, because this message isn't about fasting. Or, or sorry, this message about fasting isn't just about some religious activity for first century Jews. This is not just a Jewish thing, though certainly part of their regular observances of the Sabbath and the festivals. It's not a Muslim thing or a Catholic thing. You see, this is a God's people thing. It's a kingdom people thing. Jesus assumes that this is part of our Christian life. He says, and when you fast. And we can look at every biblical character who we look up to, 
You think about Esther, Daniel, Moses, Elijah, Jesus, Paul, the church, they all fasted. In other words, this is for all of those who would enter the kingdom of God. Those already in the kingdom and those outside the kingdom in danger of eternal judgment. This word is for us tonight. So Jesus is framing his discussion in a universal message for everyone concerning the king and the kingdom. And he focuses on fasting as the activity under question. But why fasting? Well, fasting may not seem so obscure if we look at what it's connected to in the chapter. Look again at at verse 2. We see the same phrase with a different term. Thus, when you give. He's talking about generosity here. That's familiar to us, right? Verse 5, and when you pray. He's talking about prayer. That's familiar to us. Jesus is stringing together three spiritual illustrations for one central point that governs the chapter. And we see that in verse 1. He says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before others in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And why is this significant? Well, again, the message is not just for those who fast. Certainly it is, but fasting is just a spiritual litmus test for one's heart, showing where their reward lies and who is their treasure. Or, as one of our elders have put it, we as Christians say with our hunger and our prayer, that is our fast, that there is something of far more infinite value far more essential to our life than food. And Jesus says, it's not men's praise, and it's not the world's pleasures. It is God himself. This is the litmus test, the main question for us tonight. Am I happily willing to be unnoticed by the world and by others and cherished by God? Or put another way, must others see, affirm my good deeds, my spiritual knowledge or maturity, my praying eloquently, my giving generously, fasting seriously, for me to be happy and satisfied in Christ? After framing the discussion, Jesus gives the first command or the prohibition. Look at verse 16 again. He says this, and when you fast... Do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. That is, they they present themselves in this manner, this this sad-faced, gloomy, despondent manner. And why does he focus on on the facial appearance? Why doesn't he focus on the thoughts or or the heart? Well, certainly, Jesus is going to get to the heart. But how can someone tell if you're fasting, right? They're not going to go, you're not going to present to them your full pantry of food, right? They're going to see your face, your body, how that affects you. You see, the outward appearance, the actions reveal the heart. 
And notice how he explains this about the Pharisees. Look at their actions. He says, for they disfigure their faces, that they're fasting, or their faces may be seen by others. And these, friends, are, are the Pharisees, right? They're the Sadducees. They're the religious leaders of the day. They fast to be seen, and Jesus calls them hypocrites. They're pretending to have a virtue or a quality that they do not have. They want to look righteous, right, or godly, or religious, you see, this isn't about whether fasting is a religious activity, but whether the activity is flaunted as righteousness. Jesus is exposing the Pharisees' pride, their insatiable desire to be noticed. And again, they are the religious leaders of the day. No one looked on them with more honor. No one is immune to this kind of pride. Jesus explains in more details the nature and the end of their hypocrisy, because when we hear that word, obviously we can, we can think that, hey, people call me a hypocrite as a Christian, but what, is, what does it mean for Jesus to call someone a hypocrite? Well, he, he explains it, actually, in Matthew chapter 23. Go, go there in your Bibles if you have them. Matthew 23. We're going to start in verse 5. He says this about the Pharisees. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the places of honor and at the feasts and the best seats in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. Down at verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For neither you, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. You say they, they love not God, but the places, the greetings, being called rabbi. And they shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. These are not kingdom people. In other words, they love the world. They treasure their sin. And their reward is eternal death. Look at verse 28 and 33 of Matthew 23. Verse 28. So you also, you hypocrites, outwardly appear righteous to others, but within... You are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. In verse 33, he says, You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? This is serious. Hypocrisy is serious. It's dangerous. And lawlessness is damning. Jesus isn't interested in the position you have, the title you hold, or the place of honor that we sit. And what does he promise to these in chapter 6? Look at, look at verse, um, verse 16 at the end. 
Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. You see, there, there is a reward, but its nature and its end are different. And the Pharisees already have it. You see why sin is so appealing. Why treasure on earth is so enticing. Because it's easy. It's, it's at our fingertips every moment. And it's ours to have in that moment. For the Pharisees, it's theirs, and then it's gone. You see, the praise of men is not eternal. It's something we can work our whole lives for and think it's coming someday, and it's not. This is the reality, friends, that men, we see the outward appearance, and they can be fooled. But God is not fooled. God is not mocked. He sees our heart and what we truly love and why we do what we do. Now, does that mean we ought to live in, in fear and shame, thinking that, well, my desires are never pure? Well, no, because our, his love is our hope, right? It's not our pure love. But we ought to examine the motive, the aim, the end goal of our actions. And we can know exactly what our aim is, because in the end, it's what makes us happy. It's what we find satisfaction in. Now Jesus turns to his audience, and he gives a different command. Look at verse 17 and 18 with me again. He says, But as for you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. Again, why the cosmetic tips, Jesus? Right? Why the washing of the face and the anointing of the head? Well, because the face is what's most visible. Right? Instead of distorting our faces, making ourselves look sad, he says you wash it. In other words, you take a shower. Right? Women, you do your makeup. You don't change your appearance when you fast so as to others to notice because then your reward is in their noticing. He's not saying don't, don't look or act hungry or, or even worse, right? Don't fast, as some modern interpreters mistake this. But he's saying don't look, don't act hungry to be seen by others, right? Any fasting, I mean, anyone who's fasted can tell you that fasting involves difficulty, possibly pain in the form of headaches and exhaustion and stomach pain, and it's supposed to. Because we don't do this for others. We do this for our Father in secret. Now, secret here does, does not mean it's some like hidden thing, right? We tell secrets. That's, that's not what he's talking about. There's a common misconception about fasting here. Many of us probably thought that fasting has to be secret, right? No one can know about it. We can't even talk about it. And if you don't go to Sovereign Grace Church of Dayton, you likely have never had a conversation with a Christian about possibly the most important topic in this string of texts that Jesus places at the center of his message about the kingdom. 
But this is not how God's people fasted, right? Or, or what Jesus is communicating. He's not saying, be hush-hush about your fasting. In fact, most Jewish fasts were corporate. They're corporate activities during key times in the year that God had prescribed. So instead, secret does not refer to a, you know, a hush-hush, don't let anyone know. It's saying secret is, a, he says, a secret place. Your father who is in secret that is, he's in heaven. You can't see him. We fast for our heavenly father to grow in faith for the reward that he promises. So the question is not, how do we keep this a secret? But rather, why do we participate? Right? Or better, why should we participate? We should not fast because we, we feel guilty or lesser for not doing it. And we're, pr- we're probably prone to that, right? No, we fast because there's a heavenly reward and spiritual strength and faith gained by setting aside a meal to set our eyes on Jesus. The self-denial and fasting is a feast on God. To gorge yourself in the word and prayer In an article on fasting, Sam Storm puts this well. He says, fasting is not something you do for God. It is your appeal that God in grace and power do everything for you. Thus, fasting is not an act of willpower, but a declaration of weakness. Fasting is not for God's favor in the same way that is for others' praise. Fasting is a means of grace by which we experience God's favor and long for him. And we got to get this, right? Jesus is speaking about the heart. He's not referencing this thing in our chest. He's talking about the core of our being, the place of our spiritual life, the center of our affections. What's our motive? What drives our actions? Who has our heart? The point is simple. Whoever has your heart determines what you treasure. Whoever is at the center of your affections will guide your actions, shape your parenting and your view of marriage, transform your focus on retirement, frame your contentment in singleness. And what's the promise, the glorious promise that he gives to those who fast faithfully? Well, he says it in verse 18 at the bottom. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. You see, the same father who is in the secret place also sees the secret things, namely our hearts. And he has promised a sure and a better reward And what is that reward? Well, it's not entrance into the kingdom. Though this marks those who have entered the kingdom. The reward of this kingdom is the king himself. One commentator put it this way. Fasting is not a spiritual discipline presented to God for proper recompense. That's payment. The reward the faster receives is God himself. He is God himself. 
And why is understanding this reward significant? Well, because we love what we value. Right? We serve who or what we love. And this brings us to verse 19 and our second point. The two treasures. The two treasures. So Jesus again, turning to the audience, he says this, Do not lay up treasures, or for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. The rewards of verse 16 to 18 are now seen as treasures in verses 19 to 21. And the command is the same. Don't lay up these rewards on earth. And the image is like someone rummaging around their earthly treasures and lifting them up to the next life, right? My, my 401k, I lift up. Hope that doesn't disappear, right? My perfect child, I, I lift up, hoping that that'll last. My idea of my grades, the grades I need for school, right? I lift up and hope that doesn't disappoint. And on and on it goes. And Jesus says, don't do that. Why? Well, because moth and dust can destroy it. And thieves can break in and steal it. You see, it's perishable. It's passing away. And certainly, this has to do with our possessions. Look at verse 24. He says, you cannot serve God and money. Literally, our possessions, our, our things will be destroyed, right? And th- thieves can break in and they steal them. I mean, moms, think about a nice new set of plates you get from Target, right? You bring it home after a long shopping uh, day shopping and you're making dinner, setting the table for the kids, right? And the one moment you're not watching the wandering child, what happens? child takes the plate, and he drops on the floor, and it shatters. You see, it's valuable, but it's perishable. And we spend on it, but it doesn't endure. How much more with the inward treasures that we seek as other gods? Sex, security, self-preservation. See, these indicate what we hope in, what we love, what we treasure. There is no neutral ground. Either you are laying up treasures on earth or you're doing it in heaven, either with the world or with God. So the proper response, the positive command is simple. He says this in verse 21, or sorry, verse 20. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth or rust destroys and where thieves do not break in. And steal. In a parallel passage, Luke chapter 12, Luke gives us some insight into what, what is this laying up of treasures idea, right? So turn with me there to Luke 12 if you have your Bibles. Luke chapter Now here, Jesus warns the crowds about, again, the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. It's in the the context of end-time judgment. 
And then he illustrates with this parable. Look at, let's pick up in verse 16. He says this, And he told a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, Well, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns, and I will build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. See, the sad reality is this man, he, he lays up treasures for himself and his life is gone just as quickly as the treasures are. He was not rich towards God. Now, conversely, in Matthew's gospel, at the end of this chapter, verse 33, a, a very familiar verse, Matthew gives the positive way of, of what it means to lay up treasures in heaven. He says this in verse 33, Matthew 6, But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. You see, fasting and laying up these treasures to the Father, that, that's what this is. Laying up treasures in heaven is about seeking the King and trusting in His righteousness. It's to live a life orienting itself in such a way as not to acquire and acquire and acquire money, security, pleasures, praise, for yourself, but to say, God, my life is for you. It's yours. My money is for your purposes. Help me to see how I can give generously and steward faithfully. My security is in you. Help me to take risks for the kingdom, to see my friends and my family and my employees come to Christ. My pleasure is in you. Help me to receive food and sex and music as a gift, but not as the reward. My praise is to you. Help me to find fullness of joy, making you look great by serving others. You see, sin distorts our minds. It deceives us into thinking that, that those things our money, our security, our pleasures, praise are of infinitely more value than at this moment than looking to Christ, to His Word, to orient my affections and find true sustaining satisfaction in Him. C.S. Lewis, in a famous book, The Weight of Glory, you perhaps have heard this quote, but it still rings true today. He says this, If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, 
it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Our love of people's praise, financial security, spiritual position are not too strong but too weak. Those rewards are easy. They're temporary. And there's a far better treasure. An infinite reward. Eternal life and joy and peace in the Father through the Son, by the Spirit. This kind of reward is untouchable because the world cannot take it from us because it's not from them. It's from the Father. And Jesus says this, verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That is, whoever has your heart, whoever has our heart, is our treasure. Friends, this was Moses. The writer of the Hebrews says this of him in the famous chapter on faith. It says, by faith, Moses, when he grew up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ of greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. See, Moses was a prince in the most powerful, the most prosperous nation in the known world. He had everything to gain that the world could offer, but he chose mistreatment for the name of Christ. He chose to be misunderstood, to be hated and complained to by the world and by often the people that he led up out of Egypt. And what does the Bible say about him? It says in Deuteronomy 34.10, There has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. He saw God because he was looking to a better reward. And how does he choose that? How did he see he did so by faith. By what means do we treasure God? How do we see him as more infinitely valuable than the world? 
Well, what else than my faith? And faith is a gift of God, Ephesians 2. It's an act of grace. And grace is the heartbeat of the Father who gives himself infinitely so that we might find our life, our treasure, our eternal reward in him. The greatest gift that God can give us is himself. And he did so in his son. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The good news of the gospel is the good news of God's self-giving. You see, sin is the great enemy that has fractured the goodness of creation. That's, that's why moth and, and rust destroy. And sin has fractured our sense of worth so that we look to others for what only God can give. We look around and we say, don't you love me? Don't you see me? Don't you treasure me? And Jesus says in Matthew 6, aren't you of more infinite value than they, than those sparrows that I take care of? And the lilies, will the Father not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. You see, Jesus restores our sense of worth so that we find our satisfaction in him, in his steadfast love, in his seeing of us, in his treasuring of us. And isn't that what we've experienced in Christ, that conversion? Right? We said, I was blind, but now I see. Thank you, God, you showed me who you are. And I'm selling everything to gain that treasure. You can have the world because I have Jesus, who is my life. There are some in here who know that their reward is this present life. And their treasure is men. Your life is marked by hypocrisy. You do what you do precisely to be seen. And maybe you're fooling your friends, your family, your co-workers, your spouse. And Jesus' words right now are cutting you to the heart. You see, God is not fooled. He sees our hearts. He knows our treasure. Jesus says of you in Matthew 7, 21, you who say to me, Lord, Lord, will not enter the kingdom of heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not do these religious works for you? We went to church. I, I provided for my family. I stayed with my spouse. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The end 
of the way of lifelong hypocrisy and unrepentant sin is eternity in hell. Divine judgment. That's your reward for the next life. That's the treasure you're laying up. Let me plead with you, friends. Don't save this life to lose the next. Don't invest in the reward that is perishing. God's the only treasure, the only real treasure for this life and for the next. And he's saying this to you right now. He says to you in Isaiah 55, Come, everyone who thirsts, Come to the waters, he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and you labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen to me. Eat what's good. Delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear to me, and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make for you an everlasting covenant. Everlasting. My steadfast, your love for David. Seek the Lord while he may be found, and call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that the Lord might have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For those who are members of this kingdom, those of you who have treasured Christ as your greatest reward, I have two points of application for us, two points of exhortation. First, Repentance marks people of God's kingdom. John and Jesus have the same message at the front of their ministry. They say, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. God does not call us to repentance, repentance for judgment, but to receive mercy and grace in our time of need. Repentance doesn't demonstrate our commitment, or sorry, repentance demonstrates our commitment to turning from other treasures and to say, Jesus, you are my treasure. You are my treasure. Forgive me for how I've loved these more than you. And help me to love you with all my heart by your spirit. Second, Hoping in the return of King Jesus marks the people of God and marks people of God's kingdom. In other words, we're always people of faith. His kingdom is not of this world. It is an eternal, future-oriented kingdom. And fasting here in Matthew 6 is a means of grace to orient us to that need. You see, the kingdom is certainly here, but the the full experience, the blessings, and the reward is yet to come. And that's why we need faith. That's why we need faith. 
we can have faith amidst our struggle with sin to consider him. Turn over to, to Hebrews 12 just for a moment. Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, verses 1. Verse 1. Therefore, this is coming right on the heels of Moses. Moses and everyone else in the Bible who had faith. To say to us, therefore, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. We have need, friends, to consider Jesus, to consider the imperishable life he lives for us and the hope he purchased for us in our struggle with sin. And we, have, we can have faith amidst our struggle with suffering. Turn to 1 Peter just for a moment. 1 Peter chapter 1. Just a few, few pages over. First Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while. If necessary, you are grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, the author of 1 Peter reminds us that this reward from the Father is sure. It's imperishable. The inheritance of eternal life is undefiled. It's unfading. It's kept in heaven for us. And this book, this book is about the hope of the future reign of Christ in the coming kingdom and the rewards and the blessings God's people, that's us, will experience there. That's why we fast. That's why we have faith. So we come back to our first and our main point. Treasure Christ and his kingdom rather than the praise of men and the pleasures of the world.